Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Brooke Aaron Duffy. Prof. Brooke, thank you so much for being with us. It's exciting to, to see you. I can see what looks like a pretty healthy pot plant. And on the wall, what resembles a map, but I can't see what tell whether it's really a map and lots of books in a bookcase. So that's fun. It gives me a feeling of being in a in a real environment somehow. But sadly, we're not here to talk about my feelings. We're here to talk about what interests, dynamizes, propels, worries, preoccupies you, and then situated in the context of your research. So please clue us in what's happening right now for you. So I have just started teaching uh, my my dream course, which is a course on the the promises and perils of the creator economy. And so I've been thinking through um, a lot of the challenges that people who are employed or um, have their careers contingent on social media are experiencing in the the current moment. And so I've been thinking through that both with my students, but also as part of the research I've been doing over the past few years where I have been interviewing, um, you know, we use the term creator and that kind of has this catch-all that essentially people whose careers are dependent upon big tech social media platforms um, and engage in the processes of content creation, distribution, marketing, and monetization, whether they, we want to call them creators or live streamers or, um, influencers. And essentially, in in studying this community, I I talk to a lot of them, but I also follow what's going on in discussions of um, various tech news reports. And so the latest today is that Twitter slash X is now trying to woo creators to join their platform. Um, and the way they're doing this is by putting them in this kind of super tier category um, where some of them will be hand selected to be brand friendly, to be paired with advertisers. So that's that's what I've been thinking about where my um, reading and teaching and research converge. Oh, wonderful. So a dream course. That sounds exciting. And do you know what sort of dream students you'll get? Do you already know who the what the profile is of the folks who are interested in this? I do. It's um, it's the first PhD course I've taught in probably about six years. And so when I taught it back in the day, um, back in the day, it was called Cultural Production in the Digital Age. And so we were trying to tease out, um, you know, the interface of work, labor, and technology. But the course has evolved alongside changes in the world of work, the world of tech. Um, And so the focus really is on um, using the creator economy to tease out various threads in in media and sociology. And so to that end, the student is, the course makeup is about um, half comp PhD students and a half info side PhD students as part of um, Cornell has an info and computer science program. Right. And um, the prof is a professor at Cornell University, which is a the only quasi-private, quasi-public Ivy League university, a very distinguished school in the northeast of the United States, and one of the few Ivies that teaches communications. 
and all very true and um i'm impressed you knew the the public private split and we are uh quite curiously but communication is in the agricultural school at cornell right right and and rather similarly to what happened in some of the public distinguished public schools in the midwest this connects to the way in which communications can, was linked a century ago and for many decades afterwards to both information available to agrarian workers, whether that would be district agronomics or climatic forecasting, or Mm -hmm. whether it was to do with providing uh, information on stock prices, market prices, or whether it was to do with providing entertainment for people in the home, unpaid domestic labour in the rural economy, or whether it was to do with distance education, all those elements connected along with speech communication and the attempt to give the immigrant working class a common vernacular that they could communicate with. These are the sorts of influences that impelled connections now often lost and or forgotten between communications and agrarian life. And uh, anyway, that's my version. Yeah, that's a very helpful institutional history that I wish I... I had a few years ago because it was hard to kind of make sense of what is the placement of communication with plant scientists and and animal science. And so now I've come to know that history, but it would have been helpful to have those words before my job interview. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to Susan Davis, distinguished communication scholar and folklorist just yesterday or the day before. And I was telling her how in high school, one of the strand or the strand where we had to make a choice in which discipline we would go down was between mm-hmm. French and farm mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes so, these things are binary opposites and sometimes they're bedfellows. Yes, yes, very true. In any event, so yes, you're at, at a very distinguished uh, school and in a very unusual spot. I mean, the other thing that's unusual about Cornell amongst Ivies is that it has a strong rural sociology history and it has a strong radical Marxist tradition, which doesn't really exist much mm-hmm. at most of the other Ivies in terms of labour issues. So I guess your your labour interests are, are, can congeal well with that. My query is about how in the last six years culture got displaced by creativity in the title of the course. That's an interesting paradigm choice. It is. And I think um, part of it, and I we talk about this in the class, and it's, it goes to a lot of the kind of confusing, confusing semantics surrounding um, what these people whose careers are dependent on social media are. Are they um, creators? Are they influencers? Are they cultural workers? Are they cultural laborers? Are they creative artists who have a social media presence? And um one of the reasons I, I use the the title creator economy, we talk about this in the first day, is this is very much the the name that has been hyped by the the tech companies, um, where they, of course, are foregrounding the the promises of creative artistry in ways that um, allied the more problematic elements of of being contingent and, and hitched to these companies. Um, which, you know, we can we can certainly talk more about. But yeah, it has been a very kind of 
telling discursive shift from um, bloggers to influencers to creators. And now Goldman Sachs has this survey that like I've seen 8 billion places recently where the creator economy is expected to swell to 250 um, billion dollars in the next few years. And of course, these statistics are, are you know, um, self-sustaining in a lot of ways, but the <laughs> term is, uh, is very purposeful because it ties into the industry discourse, which may or may not map onto how these workers identify themselves. And can I ask you a question about influencers, Prof? Because when I lived in the United States, I understood them to be, in a sense, gig economy style folks. Um, selling makeup, selling um, fashion, selling whatever. And now that I'm in Europe, and it's the same in Latin America, the big influences are people who are footballers and singers and movie stars. And this is just a, a sideline that helps them with their merchandising. Is that happening in the US or, or is it still this more organic connection between a person previously unknown, a brand and an audience. Um, I, I like that you use the term organic because that's certainly one of those terms we hear a lot uh, within the industry. Like, did you grow organically or did you um, inflate your followers? But to answer your question, I mean, there's there's so much slippage between um, individuals who found fame organically by posting on social media and they got discovered and discovering in this sense is not being seen at the soda fountain, but instead is <laughs> an audience. Um, but the same expectations that, you know, we are all supposed to have a social media presence across four or five, six platforms is configuring various fields of cultural work, including traditional celebrity, including of course, um, academia where we're all expected to kind of burnish this presence. And so um, my collaborator, Sophie Bishop, talks about this sense of influencer creep, where even fields that seem far removed from um, the creator influencer economy are being configured by this logic of generating followers and curating a slick self brand and making sure that your revenue streams are diverse in case any one of these companies goes belly up, which of course they may do. And Prof, you wrote a, a magazine article about academics promoting themselves um, in the Times Higher Ed. And just by way of context, the plurality of listeners to this are in the US, but not the majority. So that's why I gave my mansplaining about Cornell, because, okay. you know, 75% of people will only know it's a famous university. They won't know anything else. Um, could you take us back, 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 as they say in baseball parlance, to your thoughts, which perhaps are similar to your collaborators, about academic self-promotion. Oh, yes. This is um, one of these topics I think way too much about, um, <laughs> as we do. But the, the genesis of this is when I was working on... Um, my book on content creators and influencers in, I guess, 2017. So this would have been 2016 or so. I was interviewing a an influencer and she was talking about the importance of um, the timing of her tweets 
And um, I remember thinking, oh, I should probably do that, too, because at the time I was pre-tenured, <laughs> was thinking about how to, um, you know, get my, not my content, but my research out there. And I had this moment of, like, almost horror. Um, like, I am, now I'm thinking about being strategic with the timing of my tweets. Um, and I ended up writing an epilogue that I call the aspirational labor of being an academic, which was kind of a self-reflection on um, how on the surface, like what I do seems far removed from the individuals that I have been um, doing research with and communicating with. But actually, I need to think not about my follower count, but about my um, about my citations and my H index. And um, there was a really the, the discussion of network sociality, um, which a lot of sociologists talk about in the context of creative work. I mean, that's what we do at academic conferences, right? This kind of like blurring of personal professional lives. I don't need to have a kind of consistent pithy self brand for advertisers, but I did for my tenure committee review. And so I was um, struck by the many parallels that fields which seem far removed are actually kind of um, being structured by these these same neoliberal logics and the idea of individualism. And um, it's more recently been reflected in, in even kind of more insidious ways where I've been interviewing creators about um, the hate and harassment they experience as part of their job, which is incentivized by platform companies, which of course want more attention and data. And at the same time, I mean, I've seen it Cornell recently announced a policy on doxing and they've been thinking about how to protect academics from harassment because part of your job is communicating with uh, external audiences, but who is on the other side of that um, article that may or may not be politicized, that may or may not incite critical blowback. And so there's, there's kind of some scary parallels too. And Prof Brook, at least the last time I looked at the data to the extent that I found them to be credible. At least in the US, most influencers were female, but the boys got paid a lot better than the girls. And this was a big, big issue. Thinking about that issue of payment and gender, but also about this issue of abuse, I'm assuming gender is a big issue in the kind of, and probably race too, in the sort of abuse as well as, in inverted commas, engagement, horrible word. The people who invent these words, like platformatization, really need to go back to, you know, elementary English, but whatever. <laughs> Could you share with us, and you've written with your colleagues a fantastic book about platforms. Could you take us inside, to the extent that that's reasonable, the world of being critiqued simply for your gender or simply for your race that occurs to influencers and, of course, to academics? Yeah, and part of it is, um, you know, we're talking about, for creators, content for academics, we're talking about their, their research input. Um, but inevitably, this these forms of criticism double back and um, focus on the the creator or author's identity characteristics. Um, and so, you know, you hear about just horrific abuse um, along lines of gender, race, 
sexuality. Um, you know, this is mirrored in academic research. I was just looking at a study today about journalism. I mean, the same sorts of, um, the same sorts of harassment and, and trauma we see reflected across various professional spheres. And one place that makes the, the creator space somewhat unique is that, um, the the blurring of their personal and professional lives. And so even with journalists and, and academics, um, there's a sense that they are working in a per- professional capacity to to share their output and um, engage in this this form of public engagement. Um, so hard to not use that word. And um, but for influencers and and creators their careers are predicated on the fact that there's this personal professional blurring that, you know, that that's completely collapsed. And so, um, you know, I, I was looking back at my interview transcripts and there was someone who was working in um, a language translation YouTuber. And she was like, you know, none of my content has anything to do with my weight, but like half of the criticism focuses on my, my body aesthetics. And so, um, you know, that this is not a new story, of course, but but what is new is the the nature and extent of it and the um potential for for bad actors to weaponize this. And so um my PhD student Colton Meissner just published a paper that talks about how um trolls and, and bad actors have weaponized mass reporting. Um, which directly impacts or disproportionately impacts creators of of color and marginalized communities. So what does that mean? Um, mass reporting is essentially if you you see content you don't like or you find offensive, you can flag it, you can report it. You know, we do this all the time. I'm a vegetarian. And so when I see like meat heavy ads on Facebook, I'm like, no, no, no. Um, but using automation people can engage in these like concerted takedown campaigns of someone they don't like. And so you hear people of color, you hear women, you hear um, LGBTQ plus community being disproportionately targeted by these kind of networked hate campaigns that it's hard to find precursors in like the the pre-celebrity era of this in particular. And in terms of vegetarianism or veganism, can that also become a target of these sorts of assaults? Um, it, it has in certain cases. I, I hadn't thought about that connection, but, um, you know, there was a case a few years ago of an, an influencer who purported to be a vegetarian and someone kind of outed her eating a, a, a real hamburger. And I don't remember the specifics. Um, but, you know, people have essentially made a sport of um, what I've been thinking of as like fakery policing and so calling out transgressions. Yeah and inconsistencies and like we are human we all have inconsistencies we all act differently in in different audiences like um but because so much of of our activity of creators activities is broadcast online that's just um you know infinite more infinitely more fodder for for trolls or policers or anti-fans i'm interested in this because i'm thinking about when things are not about one's identity that is in a sense given to one but is rather ideological so mm-hmm. when you think about the sorts of critiques that right-wing bastards make about James Cameron or Leonardo DiCaprio over their environmental activism, and, of course, Cameron claims to be a Marxist, but 
there they are flying around the world to save it, to quote DiCaprio on one occasion. And there Mm -hmm. are times when I read these critiques from the right and I think, damn straight, (laughs) you know. But as you say, the other point is that who among us can cast the first stone in terms of absolutely no inconsistencies? The vegan who might eat honey. Yeah. Or might not. The what to do with Peter Singer's latest work on animal rights, dealing with the fact that plants experience pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these sorts of things, the 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 simple hues of good and bad are so complex, I think. Now, Prof, in terms of your experience of interviewing people, you've done a lot of that over different groups, different cohorts. Do you see different Kind, do you have different experiences of interviewing depending on the period, the kind of person you're interviewing, your development as a person, as a scholar? Um, absolutely. Yeah, I, I like that question. I mean, um, one of the most obvious ways it's played out. So I, the, the book I'm working on right now is about visibility in the creator economy. And a lot of the changes that I've seen in interviewing um, cultural workers broadly construed since like 2010 through now, um, a lot of it hinges on visibility. And so when I first started out and I, I was a grad student, I didn't have the resources to compensate people. And um, I would continuously meet gatekeepers who did not want me to talk to magazine editors or TV workers because um, they were worried that I was going to like spill some corporate secret. Um, and, you know, fast forward that a few years where now there is um, a level of prestige associated with academic research in, in some communities. And so I've had people reach out to me and ask if I want to interview them. And it's like, this is, this is weird. <laughs> Um, I've had people's agents like recommend their um, their talent for interviews. And I'm like, no, this, you know, there there needs to be kind of an organizing principle around the the work. Um, and so that notion of visibility, because, um, you know, people. People realize that in these visibility economies, having some sort of um whether we want to call it prestige or or status or affiliation with a a university setting. I think that's been really interesting to see. Um, I think it's also kind of telling um, and I'm not quite sure of telling of what, but I I'm also struck by how much more willing people are to talk about um, mental health aspects with me. And anytime um, I get a media request or anyone wants to talk about social media and mental health. I'm like, that's not me. I am not a psychologist. I always say I'm a media sociologist. I am I am not the person. I have no expertise in, in that sort of issue. That said, most of the creator interviews I've done over the past few years where I say, you know, you end the conversation, is there anything else you think would be useful to talk about? Or we're talking about, um, you know, the promises and perils of this career. That inevitably comes up. The the burnout, the um, the challenge of having a career that is not only dependent on big tech companies, but, um, 
you know, having to pull in revenue streams for from four or five, six different venues, again, in case any one of these platforms shuts down without notice. Um, the expectation from audiences to always be on, to be churning out content. One of my interview transcripts, which I was looking over this morning, talked about like the pressure to be constantly mining your life for a 30 second clip that's going to go on TikTok. And so um, I think that, yeah, that's been kind of surprising is not the right word, but maybe harrowing to hear how often that comes up when I I have never explicitly asked questions about that. That is interesting. So there's something there about status and prestige over time, moving from being a grad student to a professor at an Ivy. And there's something that is also perhaps about academia becoming something that these companies think they can use or these agents think they can use. And there's something there about the mental health aspect. Do you think that being a woman is relevant there? The the notion of being able to confide in a woman as opposed to a man might draw, draw people to do that. I ask this because in academia, so many women feel as though they do a treble shift, if not more, compared to many men in terms of students confiding in them. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about that in the in the interview element. Um, I, I feel that I, you know, have a good rapport with my interview participants. You know, I've interviewed some of them on, on multiple occasions. Um, and maybe it is because, you know, I see so many parallels to my own profession to this. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, the issue of the kind of burden on women and um, women of color in particular of the kind of emotional trauma within academic life is, um, yeah, kind of astounding in, in some ways. And in terms of other sorts of methods, leaving interviewing aside for the moment, what else are you doing to understand these fascinating phenomena? You mentioned reading the trade magazines as one source. Yeah, so um, I have subscribed to so many different newsletters on the creator economy um, to try to make sense of this space that is, of course, a moving target. There are so many players and, and changes. Um just this week, I was kind of going into the um, the sort of public way that these platform companies pitch themselves to current and aspiring creators, because it's really um, striking to me to see the, the gap that exists between um, the way they are pitching their services as this forum to um, join and be creative and and get paid, you know, and and or maybe this is your your hustle, your side hustle, uh, and the very real lived experiences of creators who are experiencing this precarity on a daily basis. Uh, yeah, so I think that has been quite illuminating to look at how the platform companies engage in this communication. Um, I love um, Business Insider and the information, which is a creator economy newsletter. And so I've been subscribing to that for some time. And they're constantly talking about the new startups of the, I mean, it, it's absolutely uh, staggering to kind of make sense of, you know, 10 new startups launched today in the creator space and the various moves the platform companies are making. 
But it's it's very challenging because we know the lifeline of academic research is incredibly slow. <laughs> and some of these companies may not even be there when you're talking about, you know, I joke when if I go into a classroom and I talk about my space, like that moment, I'm going to lose all of the students. And so it's the same kind of concerns with um, when you're researching this community, how do you find the the through lines that are going to last beyond a particular platform, because we don't know what the ecosystem is going to look like. We don't know what the players are. And so what are kind of the enduring issues that are going to um, tell us something about work and and labor and our sense of self beyond this particular trend that lasts 15 seconds. And that is the classic Leninist problem of overproduction. Capital discovers something people are interested in. It invests vast amounts of money in it. There's too much money for the amount of talent or the amount of interest or desire involved. And so you get (laughs) wonderful moments like Rupert Murdoch wasting hundreds of millions of bucks on MySpace. I just wish it had happened much more (laughs) often. But it it is a fascinating thing, isn't it? It really is. And in a way, tell me if I've got this completely wrong or if there's something to what I'm saying. Hi, darling. Sorry, my uh, eight-year-old is moving towards the kitchen. This could mean I need to do something about dinner that we'd agreed I would cook after the conversation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, tell me if I've got this completely wrong or if this is mad or there's something in this. Is there a sort of structural homology of any kind between influences today and reality TV stars of yesterday in the sense that these are great for capital because there are very few development costs, unlike what you have with actors or directors or producers of TV series that are, you know, so-called scripted or movies or even TV commercials or other kinds of commercials because the responsibility for developing things is put onto the talent itself. So it's it's much better than, you know, or it's much cheaper than these other areas. Is there some kind of link between reality TV stars and their exploitation or their attempt to be exploited by business and what happens with the influencers? Yes, I think so. Um, I, I've been thinking through this and I, I can't find... Um, you know, in all of these, it's it's hard to go beyond speculation, but I absolutely agree. And I, I think it's quite, you know, what what really the similarities between um, the structure of reality TV and the structure of the creator economy. And of course, there's like the ideals of, of authenticity, but the structural element and what I think um, why we see these parallels is at the same time that um, and this is like November all of these companies were just laying off talent in droves. They yes. were all doubling down on the creator economy discourse. And so they were investing there as they were losing yes. their full-time salary to employees. And I was like, this is exactly what happened 20 years ago with reality TV at the same moment that, um, you know, there's a strike and we need to find new, the company needed to, or excuse me, the industry fight needed to find new ways to source labor Um they're all of a sudden hyping reality TV. So I, I think there's absolutely parallels between this kind of structural conditions and the labor, because even Meta, which, you know, and Meta and Snap have both gotten into the creator space, as I 
mentioned at the start of our conversation in recent weeks, X has been trying to find ways to to woo new creators to the site. And so I think the fact that this is happening at a moment where there are concerns about the longevity of, of big tech, both because of the, the tech lash as well as um, the economics is quite compelling. So yes, I, I, I agree completely. And, and, my next question, uh, Prof, if I may, is to do with the issue of organizing, which in the U.S. means normally trying to organize as a union if you're a front of labor or some kind of social movement, though it doesn't always mean that elsewhere. I'm, I'm aware of some groups of influencers who are wanting to organize Hi, darling. Do you want me to go back on the terrace? Okay, thank you. Are you watching influencers? <laughs> it's hard. Are you watching influencers? No. Oops, sorry, darling. Stay here. You're welcome. Bad parenting. So... <laughs> This question of organizing, I'm aware of some groups that are seeking to organize in terms of things like gender differentials in pay and so on. Do you see any evidence of that sort of thing going on? Yeah, there, um, you know, years ago, there was the YouTubers union. And um, now, especially in the wake of the Hollywood strikes, there have been various initiatives bubbling up with um to have more organized communities of creators, of influencers in New York City, I just came across um, a budding influencers union. And so I think there are these more concerted attempts to establish um, what we would think of as organized labor. But I I also think there are more um, unofficial grass, grassroots efforts of creators mm. to to band mm -hmm. together that are also important even though they don't necessarily look like traditional organizing um you know so simple examples like hashtag campaigns i talked to a lot of uh queer creators who they were thinking about how to push back against their perception that they were unfairly targeted by the algorithm and so um rather than put hashtag gay in their content they would do g um at sign Y. And so these, and they would share these different mechanisms to kind of evade surveillance. And so this isn't the same as um, full organizing or the kind of shop floor model, but I think it's important. Uh, there also is something called FU Pay Me, which is. Oh, yeah. I tried to join that, but she turned me down. Oh, <laughs> um, they've been great in, in yeah. you know, garnering um, crowdsourced anonymous information about the the pay disparities in this, because the reality is, you know, of course it benefits both um, the advertisers and the platform companies to conceal their earnings because it is so profoundly lopsided. Um, so, I mean, I, I would love to see a more, I would love to see and be involved in a more concerted effort for organization among these groups but i think for now the kind of small scale ways they are communicating and um forming networks is is a good place to start so i was i tried to join fuck you pay me 
um, a couple of years ago because I was very impressed by what they were doing and the data they had. And I was rejected, but they wrote to me the other day. And so I'm still hoping. I also applied to be an influencer um, with a Colombian company that sells nail polish. Mm -hmm. And because they have a, or they did have anyway, a page on their site. Uh, it's called Mars Globe's company. It really only sells in a few South American countries and in Miami, but it's oh, very okay. successful. Yeah. And it became very controversial because it had a poet in residence and an artist in residence who decided to move away from what was the norm with nail polish for women, which is to promote, to give titles to things that are letters and numbers that don't mean anything, they're arbitrary, but instead to yeah. give words. And the words they used included many misogynistic ones in the case of targeted yeah, adults. And for teenage girls, they would give boys' names, nothing else. These were the, the way you could identify your colour. This became very controversial, led to a big spat on Facebook and Twitter, which a few of us studied. Anyway, I thought I'd like to become a, an influencer for them. I thought that as a, I was then a 61-year-old white man, not resident in Colombia. I'd be an ideal influencer, but I was turned down, Prof. Can you what tell me? <laughs> I'm not asking you to tell me why this happened, but are there influencers of my vintage? Um, there, there are, they tend to be women, um, Lynn Slater, much older. Um, and I was on a panel with her and she actually just recently kind of came out and talked about, um, how the, she was almost kind of admitted to putting on a facade of being like the, um, ideal cool older lady. And I'm probably misconstruing it. Um, but I, I think the, the issue you get at is, the notion of curation. And so the, there's this idea that this is democratic. Anyone can do it with an audience. But the reality is there are there are humans in this process that are making these decisions based upon their, you know, their human biases. And so, um, you know, every time I hear this kind of narrative, uh, like more of a meritocratic framing, you know, um, <clears throat> Talented people, we, we you you can certainly join, and we're accepting folks of all likenesses. <laughs> um, but the reality is, you know, you you look at who is um, working as brand ambassadors for these, and they tend to conform to quite traditional standards, or else they're kind of fetishized for being the the different right. unique. The, the so all, yeah, like, like the, the nutty granddad on YouTube. <laughs> so. Changing tack, Prof, if we may, uh, and don't worry, I'm planning to sort of free you from the questioning in, in about 10 minutes, if that's all right. I want to yes. go back, back, back to what is one of your, one of my favorite pieces of writing by you, which I really love, which is your first book. And this takes us back to what might have seemed like it was of the moment, but is now almost historical, right? And that's magazines for teenage girls. For young, yes. really interesting, a wonderful book, and wonderfully written, by the way. Really wonderful. I'm so insecure about it because I, you know, that was my dissertation, and so yeah, that feels like a lifetime ago. Well, 
just great English for me, for what it's worth. Tell us a bit about that book, and because it begins with this very evocative account of you as, I don't know, a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old or whatever, rifling through the pages of Seventeen magazine or something like that. Mm-hmm. And what it meant to you. I wondered if I'm not asking you to go back to being 12 or 13 or however old you were, but tell us about what animated you, drove you, interested you as a young reader of those magazines and how you came to engage with them later on as a critical adult scholar. Yeah, it. I mean, it really is one of these moments that stuck with me because, you know, we all have um, thinking back to those like media and cultural moments that um, were kind of formative, but of course we can only recognize in hindsight. And um, I was just such an avid consumer of women's magazines, girls' magazines, teens' magazines. So yeah, 17 was probably spot on. And then um, (laughs) as I grew older, I continued to read these magazines, but I also learned about the criticisms of them. And um, Gloria Steinem's piece on um, talking about the challenges of securing advertising for a feminist magazine compared to the kind of the the logic of um, most women's magazines, which is very conducive to advertising, so much so that you know yeah. the entire magazines are seen as catalogs. And so I was, you know, learning about the criticisms of them as part of a political economy course at the same t- same time that I still. Um, relied upon them for advice and and guidance um was something that i struggled with and of course this this is not new to, to the cultural studies this this axis here um but when it came time to write my dissertation i kept coming back to um you know what what was this genre what was this medium um doing as we entered the 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 newer days of of digital and social media and what did this mean for the people that worked in them because um you know especially taking seriously the gender politics like women's magazines were considered as a safe space for for women to work when women were not um conventionally employed outside the home i mean this goes back to the early 20th century and so uh Thinking about the the politics of work in the women's magazine industry and, um, you know, another sort of, so that drove me is to, is like the intellectual to see how this field and this industry that I loved was evolving. Um, But there was also the element of it that I've always been fascinated and by media industries I wanted I as an undergraduate I thought I would work in advertising and and it wasn't until I took a political economy course that I was like I do not want to work in advertising but I want to study it and so um I my interest in in media is really in the the production dynamics and so that that book on the um, women's magazine industry was kind of grappling with both the cultural product that I loved, but also the reality of the working Mm -hmm. conditions within this. Um, And as I was doing that book, I kept hearing about the impact of fashion bloggers and I don't have a background in fashion. I didn't, you know, I was just like, Oh, interesting. And that really um, sort of sparked this whole interest in thinking and taking seriously social media labor and digital labor. Prof, you're not the first person I've encountered who did 
an, her undergrad at Penn State, where I see you went from your web page. I loved it. When, I loved it. Uh, if, everybody loves it there, I think, apart from the victims of its horrors. Yes. And it's a great school. But apart from anything else, I've met a number of you guys who've gone in bright-eyed, bushy-tailed to do advertising. And then the lights went off in some yeah. other class. It's really interesting, I think, the progressive oh, in Pe- at Penn State. Yeah? Yeah. It, it was a political Rod and Betting who... Um, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Very, very tragic. Um, I mean, that course changed my life. I was I was set to become an ad major, and all of a sudden I was... I was reading, um, you know, McChesney and Bagdikian, and I was like, I, I can't work in this field. And I mean, it, it was, you know, I talk about it now and it's like my trajectory and I it make it very clear, but it was very jarring and rattling to be someone who, um, you know, at that age was like, I don't know what to do, but I, this is horrifying. <laughs> so, so we, we, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, it, it it was a, you know, one of those, you talk about like the connecting the dots. I mean, that class was a huge dot in my life. I do not know where I would be without that class. And uh, we're, we're both feeling sad about somebody we knew. You knew him better than I did. Ronald Bettig, who was a great political economist, who wrote a terrific book on intellectual property, copyright issues and so on, who was a charismatic teacher for folks and who passed away under very uh, unfortunate yeah. possibly you know, criminal circumstances, maybe a decade ago, would it be, Prof, do we think? Yeah, that? I think so. Um, but who was very important, and you've mentioned uh, Bob McChesney, who's been on the podcast and will be back, and Beg- Ben uh, Bagdikian, uh, who really, I think, was the foundational person in mapping the horrors of U.S. corporate media. Now, I, I didn't realize we get into that, but I'm glad I mentioned Penn State because I appreciate your frankness in talking about issues of self-promotion, in talking about Penn State, in talking about women's magazines. That's incredibly thoughtful and I think valuable for many of us who admire your work and for others who will come to know it better because of this very important moment in this podcast. Just kidding. But, Prof, I had a couple more questions for you, and then I'd like to throw it to you to add anything or subtract anything. Does that sound okay? That sounds great. This has been fun. Thank you. So, you know, I may have to make things up to the eight-year-old, I think, because... I I have a two-year-old, yeah, I, I know. Right. I mean, it's amazing how disappointing parents are. I mean, they're just terrible. I have a grown-up daughter who's just become a mom. So I'm about to go through this with a granddaughter and I'm going through it with a younger daughter. And it's terrible being such a failure. We made pancakes for the first time today. Oh, nice. I'd never made pancakes. And it was really fun. We had a great time, but I wasn't very good at it. So first ever vegan pancakes. So there we go. I'm impressed. Well, you didn't have to eat them, Prof. (laughs) My first question is this. You've already shared with us very generously your interview methods and your, you know, reading Business Insider style magazines methods. 
but you've also told us how you've got the critical political economy perspective. Mm-hmm. What happens when you're wanting to understand on their own terms the lives of people working in these areas versus your critical instincts? Do they ever clash? Is that ever complicated? Or does it actually work together just fine? Oh, I, I think they absolutely clash and it's like those those clashes are um the moments to to try to figure out what's going on and so um i mean my entry into studying social media labor i talked about the the magazines but in terms of more of my um conceptual inquiry yes what this um was in graduate school when I was taking a course with Catherine Sender, who is now my, my colleague um, in a, in a wild twist of fate. And um, I went in and I said, I wanted to do a study on women's magazines again. And she's like, do something different. And so I, I was panicking. What do I do? This is what I was studying. And so I came across this contest on, um, it was basically like the, the Dove American crash the Super Bowl campaign, but for women. And so it was a, it was, and this is, you know, keep in mind, this is the early days of digital media, um, earlier days. But essentially, it was a contest where they invited participants to submit contest entry commercials. And if they were selected, they wouldn't go to the Super Bowl, they would go to the Oscars. Again, very feminized version of this. And so I came into this project thinking, wow, these people are cultural dupes because they have no idea that they are essentially plugging Dove, doing the free labor for, um, you know, so so Dove doesn't have to hire marketing experts or advertising creators. They can just get, ask the audience to do it for free. And so it wasn't until I actually started doing the interviews where I was like, these people are very thoughtful and understanding and critical of what they're doing, but they see this contest as a launching pad to to something else. But of course, they they realize the kind of mechani- um, mechanics of promotion that were driving this. And so um, I think a lot of times I'm, I come at this stuff all way too critically. And it's not till I'm talking to participants and I have to kind of yeah. um, reconcile the fact that they are very cognizant of, of what's going on in some of these structural issues right. and they're doing the best they can to navigate well, complex circumstances. And, um, you know, that comes from my own privilege in, in a stable career to, to kind of reconcile how, how others are, are navigating precarity. Prof, uh, Coca-Cola's advertisers used to consult with me for free before deciding on their Super Bowl commercials. Wow. Okay. There you go. You should be paid the big bucks. And I should have gotten the big bucks, but A, in those days, I had a stable job and a good salary. And B, I thought this is a way of potentially having influence that we didn't know the word influencer at that point in history. This is 15 years ago. This is a way of stopping them from doing really awful things. Maybe you know, a minor reformist effort, pathetic. But I really appreciate, again, your frankness in talking about that clash that can happen. That's wonderful. My last question before turning it over to you is, imagine this. Instead of being a failed applicant to be an influencer for Maslow, (laughs) I'm 
a 24-year-old, truly bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, radical scholar, knocking on your door. And I'm saying, Prof Duffy, help me. I want to do a PhD. I'm in the program. I know I have to take all these courses. But I'm confused. I love popular culture, be it women's magazines or the English Premier League or nail polish from Colombia, whatever it may be. But I feel as though I shouldn't love these things because of my critical perspective. Can I bring these things together in a dissertation project? And will you help me? Mm, oh, good question. Um, I mean, I think that's the kind of project to to do your dissertation on, the, the kind of project that you want to make sense of the consistencies or the, you want to make sense of the inconsistencies. Um, I One of my senior colleagues who um, I, I very much value his insight on everything, and he was, I mean, he's, he's just like the sage person in the department, um, but he was saying something along the lines of what you should research is what keeps you up at night. And I thought that was a, a good way to think about it because it's, there's so much pressure to, um, you know, publish something that is going to be marketable on the job market that you can anticipate because it is so precarious or to, um, you know, anticipate what job seekers may be looking for or, um, you know, to, to move the conversation in a totally different direction. And I think really, um, you know, focusing on those, those things that like nag at you and, and the things that nag at us, the things we care about, yeah. um, the things yeah. immersed in, because a dissertation is a long, arduous, process. And so the number one thing when picking a topic is it has to be something that will sustain you. Um, you know, the the challenge, of course, is if you're so close to it, how do you get a critical perspective? And I think that happens with with time and also with, you know, owning owning that that closeness and, and saying, like, I am undoubtedly, mm-hmm. um, you know, shaped by by my experience and, and my close relations and my affect towards this particular product. Um, but I, I would say that that is the kind of dissertation topic to do. And it's, it's going to continue to, um, now you, I mean, I, I still could try to reconcile the kind of structure and, um, lived experiences of labor. Like that hasn't gone away. Thanks so much. So, uh, Prof BD, let me throw it to you to see whether there are things you'd like to subtract from what we've said or add to them, things that we've missed that you'd like to stress or bring to bear on the conversation. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I'm glad we talked about the, the labor of academic self-promotion because it, it just becomes another uh, thing tacked on to the already seeing amount of tasks that um, academics are supposed to do. And I think it's important that um, academic writing be accessible and go beyond just other academics. I mean, I, I care deeply about um, engaging with the public, but at the same time, that is time and energy away from 
your work, quote unquote. And so that, again, is something that creators deal with when I ask them, um, what is the most surprising thing about your job? Of course, all of them talk about the the burnout and the always on nature. But also they say, I spend like the majority of my day doing email. Tell me if that doesn't feel like like our lives. So. Professor Brooke Aaron Duffy, thank you. And I don't think there's anything I want to subtract. Good. Thank you so much. It was great to chat.